Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come this morning. Open up our hearts to what you would say. Lord, we are, we are willing to pivot. We're willing to change. and We're willing to do what you want to do because if you don't show up this morning, then we're a book club. We're a social gathering. Lord, we are your people. We are your church. You've filled us with your spirit. You've given us your power. So Holy Spirit, show us how to move with you, how to do what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone says, amen. I have a recommended reading for you. I'm going to be speaking. um, A lot of the ideas that I'm going to be talking about in today's message come from a book called God Still Heals. God Still Heals. It's by James and Carol Garlow. You can order it on Amazon. I believe you can get it um, at some other bookstores, but it's called God Still Heals. Fantastic book. We're going to be talking a lot about some ideas in this book. If you're new to the church or new to uh, the series, we, we've been in the midst of a, a, a long series. It's been about 10 weeks now, a series about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And today we're talking about uh, three gifts of the Spirit. We're going to be talking about the gifts of faith, the gift of miracles, and the gift of healing. And I've been saying this all throughout this message, that as Paul uh, lists all these different gifts of the Spirit, he lists things like giving and mercy and faith and encouragement, healing, prophecy. And all believers are called to step into all of these gifts at some point in their life. Now, you may not have a spiritual gift, but what I've been saying throughout this series, and what if you haven't written this down already, please do, whatever is not a spiritual gift becomes for you a spiritual discipline. And I used an example of, a, of, of, of using a snowblower to, to clear off your driveway versus shoveling off you know, the snow, just one shovel scoop at a time. That it, it gets done, it needs to be done regardless, but with the person who has the gift, there is a grace and there is an ease that comes with doing that particular thing. And for the rest of us who do not have the gift, it becomes for us a spiritual discipline that we have to learn to walk in mercy, even if we don't have the gift of mercy. Amen. We have to learn to have faith in God and trust God, even if we don't have the gift of faith. We have to learn to encourage each other and, and pray for one another, even if we don't have the gift of exhortation or the gift of encouragement. And so, you know, as we talk about these three gifts faith, miracles, and healing, I understand that there can be a tension in some people when discussing these topics because perhaps you've seen a misuse of these gifts in the church. And perhaps you're frustrated because you've seen a lack of these gifts in the church and you blame church leadership or you blame others who have been silent on these gifts for too long. And perhaps some of you have a lot of pain regarding these topics because you have prayed for a loved one and they died regardless. Or you've prayed for someone and they remained sick and your prayers seemed ineffective. And so when we talk about healing and we talk about how God does miracles, you might have discouragement in your heart. You might feel saddened by that. But whatever your preconception is that you bring to today's message, can we all do our best to open ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit and eagerly desire, just like Paul asks, to learn his ways, to operate in his gifts. And know that I'm on this journey with you, church, that I'm, I'm a student of the Holy Spirit, and I'm also learning these things alongside of you. And so with that said, would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 12? We're going to jump right in to where Paul mentions these three gifts in Scripture. 
1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It says this. Now, there are, variety, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Then he says, to another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So we, we see here in scripture that it is the Holy Spirit that distributes these gifts and determines who has these gifts. Now, I'm going to let you know right off the bat that this is going to be a slightly longer message than I normally preach. And the reason for that is, is last night when I came in here and was praying over this message and was working on the outline don't worry, I didn't write it last night. I was just practicing it, okay? And when I was here last night, I felt the Lord say that I needed to expand on some of these ideas a little bit more. And that's going to cause this message just to be a little bit longer. So I'm going to talk about faith and miracles, but we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about gifts of healing at the end, all right? Let's talk first and foremost about the gift of faith. The gift of faith. Faith is for every believer, we can all agree that every believer has some level of faith or else they wouldn't be a believer. They wouldn't put their trust in Jesus and they wouldn't be able to please God, which is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven six. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I think it's interesting that Paul informs us that not every Christian has been given the same level of faith. But we all have some measure of faith. And Paul says in Romans 12 that each of us have different measures or portions of faith. Romans 12.3 says, For by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think of yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Isn't that interesting that we all, based on our experiences and based on the time we've spent in the presence of God, we all have different measures of faith and we can also grow in our faith. So there's a level of faith that God has given every believer, but there is a gift of faith. And while all believers some possess some amount of faith, there's a gift, which is a special ability to trust God beyond the limits of what we think is normally possible. And remember, Paul says that not every believer possesses this gift. And we see an example in Scripture of a man who had the gift of faith. It was Stephen in Acts 6, 6, 5. It says, and, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and all these other interesting names that come after that. I'm not going to butcher I'm not going to butcher it. Don't worry. And we see that there's examples of people in Scripture that were given this gift of faith. Now, the question that you might be asking this morning and the question that I'm asking is God has called 
every one of us to have faith. And Jesus talks a lot about faith in the Bible. He tells his disciples, if you would just have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would be cast into the sea. And my question for myself is, how do I get more faith? How do I get more faith? If faith is what pleases God and it's impossible to please God without it, how do I get more faith? And Romans ten seventeen gives us the answer. The Apostle Paul says this. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing the what? The word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Before one can exercise biblical faith, they must personally know the God of the Bible. And they must be able to hear his voice. And one way in which God communicates to his people, the primary way that he communicates to his people is through his written word. But here's the interesting thing in Romans 10, 17. When Paul uses the phrase word of God, he's not talking about the written word of God. The written word of God in the Greek is the Greek word logos or logos. And Paul in Romans 10 uses a different word. It is the Greek word rhema. And it is the spoken word of God. Or it can be referred to as the testimony of what God has done. So faith comes by hearing The spoken word of God, yes, it comes by reading the word of God's scripture, but it also comes by hearing the testimony of what God has done. Let me give you some examples of this in scripture where where we see this word rhema. And when John the Baptist's father, John the Baptist's father's name was Zacharias, and he, he, uh, he didn't believe that God would give him a son, and so he became mute. But when John the Baptist was born... People asked Zacharias, what are you going to name the boy? And he wrote on a tablet the name John. And as he did that, his mouth opened up and he began to speak again. And this is what Luke 165 says. It says, and fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised. That's the word rhema. All these sayings were noised abroad throughout the hill country of Judea. In other words, people began to tell other people the testimony of what God had done in Zacharias' life. Another example is when the women reported to the disciples that the tomb was empty. The ladies, they go to the tomb and they see that Jesus is not in there. His body is not in there. And so they go to the disciples and they tell them, that he's not there. And in Luke 24, 11, it says, and their words, that's the word rhema again, their words seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. The disciples did not believe the testimony that the women had given him saying that Jesus is not in the tomb any longer. So this word rhema refers to the spoken word of God or the testimony of what God has done in the lives of people. In other words, our faith increases When we hear the testimony of God at work in the lives of people. The spoken word of God's power in the lives of our friends and family and those around us. Now, if you're a person who has been given the gift of faith. Then the Bible says that you should not look down on those who lack faith. And not every Christian possesses this spiritual gift. God, the Holy Spirit alone, decides who will receive it. And rather than rebuke a person for lacking faith, 
Those with this gift should pray that God increases the faith of those who need it. And church, the, the church of God needs to hear this today because we've just gone through a serious season where Christians were looking down on one another based upon whether or not they got vaccinated or wore a mask or what they believed politically. And some people were saying, you should have faith that God will protect you from the virus. And others were saying, you should have faith that God has given wisdom to doctors and will protect you from any potential side effects of the vaccine. And so we were at each other's throats because of what we believed and because where we put our where we put our faith we were saying you don't have enough faith for this and we were judging one another but paul talks about a situation like this in romans 14 now when the church uh in the first century how many of you know that to be a jewish believer before before christ before the new testament jews would not eat certain kinds of animals they would not eat pork or or bacon oh lord I'm I'm on keto right now and I just I love my bacon. It's like the it's the one thing that keeps me on keto is bacon. But the Jews they couldn't have bacon. And the Lord Peter has this vision of all these unclean animals coming down on a sheet and the Lord tells him to eat it all. He says, "Do not call what I have created unclean. Kill and eat." All you hunters in the room are like, "Yeah." That's what I'm talking about, pastor. But for some people, this reality that God had said, finally, you can kill and eat. You can eat some of these things that you couldn't previously eat. For some people, they weren't fully bought into it. And so there were still believers who were not eating certain kinds of foods. And there was judgment being passed in the church towards people who were eating those foods and who were not eating those foods. And Paul says in Romans 14, he says this in verse 1, he says, Accept other believers who are weak in faith. And don't argue with them about what what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it is right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn, condemn someone else's servants? In other words, Paul is saying, everybody here is serving the Lord. We are all on the same team. Stop condemning one another. Stop judging one another. And then in verse 17, he says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, listen to this, you will please God. And others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Paul is saying, don't get on each other's cases don't be at each other's throats because of the measure of faith that each person has you might have a lot of faith and might be really frustrated with others in the church who do not have the level of faith that you have that god says do not be at their throats live in harmony with one another and build one another up people who have the gift of faith should pray for others to receive more faith should pray for encounters with God, should share testimony of the word of God and and how God has moved in their life to build other people up. And others should honor the one who has faith by inviting them to pray for you and listening to what God has done in their life. There's a way to honor both parties. That's the gift of faith. Let's talk now about the gift of miracles. We tend to think of miracles being specifically about healing 
But Paul uses a different word for healing in this passage. And the English word for miracles doesn't accurately convey what Paul intended because the Greek word is simply the plural form of the word dynamis. And it's, it means power. It's where we get the word dynamite. Dynamis. And this means that this term may refer to any kind of activity where God's mighty power, where his dynamis is evident. So let me give you some examples of what we think may include miraculous powers. It may include answers to prayer for deliverance from physical danger. So an example of this in scripture is in Acts 5.19 when an angel opened the doors of the apostles' jail cells. When they were in prison and an angel came and miraculously opened the doors of the jail cells. That was a, an, that was a miracle, an act of God's power in their life. It may also include powerful works of judgment on the enemies of the gospel or to those who require discipline within the church. And like in Acts 13, 9, when Paul declared that a sorcerer and a false prophet named Simon would go blind for a time. He was an enemy of God. He, he had wrong motivations. And Paul declared that he would go blind for a time and the man went blind. That was an act of God's power in that moment and may refer to what Paul is talking about uh, with the gift of miracles here. It may also include miraculous deliverance from injury. Like when Paul in Acts 28.3 was bitten by a viper on his way to Rome. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. And everybody in the company believed that Paul was going to die. But the next morning he was completely fine. That was another act of God's power. And might be what Paul is referring to when he's talking about miracles here. And we can't forget this. And this is, might be a, a primary, uh, what, what Paul is primarily talking about. But he's, he's also talking about power to triumph over demonic opposition and deliverance from demonic oppression. So, so deliverance from the demonic. One who has the spiritual gift of miracles experiences God's mighty power moving throughout their life and the people they intercede for. The gift of miracles is important to the church because it authenticates the message of the gospel. And this was evident in Jesus' own life. As people like Nicodemus acknowledged that Nicodemus was a rabbi and he, he was speaking to Jesus and he told Jesus, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with them. No one could perform the signs. Nobody could do the miracles that you're doing if God was not with him. It authenticated the gospel message that Jesus was preaching. In Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, says, this salvation, which is first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Miracles, signs, and wonders point to the authority of God and the validity of the gospel of Jesus. And a church without power, a church without dynamis, without the power of the Holy Spirit is a book club. We get together and we read from a book and we talk about how wonderful that was, how warm and tingly that made me feel. But the church is not supposed to be a book club. It is a matter of power. First Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of dynamis. It's a matter of power. It's the same word there. And I believe that there is a season coming for our church that will look like the book of Acts. 
I'm not just saying this church. I believe it with my whole heart. And my prayer is for every church in Ephrata, is for every church in our community. We are not competing for church members. We are on the same team. And so as much as you pray for our church, that pray for the success and that God would be moving in our church, pray for the churches of Ephrata, that God would move in power in their churches as well, so that a revival, a move of God would break out in our community. And we would see it here in our town. I love what the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4. This is after Peter uh, looks at the, the crippled man laying by the gate beautiful near the temple. And he looks at him and he says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. Stand up and walk. And the man walked and he, the man and Peter, I believe it was John, went before the, the Sanhedrin. They went before the religious leaders of the time. And the religious leaders commanded them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop telling people about Jesus. They didn't want them to, call, to cause any more trouble, bring any more attention to Jesus. And this is what the believers prayed in Acts 4, verse 29. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word stretch out your hand with healing power may miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant jesus and after this prayer the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the holy spirit by the way these are the same people that were filled with the spirit in acts 2 they are once again filled with the spirit meaning that god doesn't want to just fill you once he wants to do it continually throughout your life he wants to fill you over and over again And they preached the word of God with boldness. I love what they said. They said, give your servants, give us great boldness to preach your word. And they said, but then God, you do your part as well. Stretch out your hand and and perform healings and miracles. They asked God for it. And I believe that this is to be our prayer in this season. That we are to say, God, give us boldness. Now, I'm so thankful that we don't live in a country or in a place where your life is threatened when you share your faith. But you know what is threatened when you share your faith? Your comfort is on the line. Your reputation is on the line. And we care so much about those things. But the Bible says that if you are in the family of God and you follow Jesus, you are called to die to those things. Jesus never promised you comfort. He never promised you a good reputation. He said to humble yourself and he would lift you up. He would exalt you. That we are called to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him. And so stepping out in boldness in our community doesn't look like our brothers and sisters overseas whose lives are on the line every single day when they share their faith. But for us, we go into Walmart. We get the opportunity to go into Safeway, to walk down the street, to meet with our family this Thanksgiving. And we need to be asking the Lord, give us boldness. Give us a new boldness to share your word and a strategy to do it as well. Faith, miracles. Now we're going to go into healing. Are you ready? Let's define the gift of healing. The gift of healing is the supernatural manifestation of the spirit of God that miraculously brings healing and deliverance from disease, infirmity, or trauma. And believe it or not, cessationists and cessationists are people who believe 
that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, that there's no more need for the gifts of the Spirit since we have the New Testament. The Bible has been completed. And God, uh, cessationists believe that they gave, that God gave the first century church gifts of the Spirit and miracles and healings and signs and wonders so that he could help the early church get off the platform and launch into a global movement. But now that that is done, we don't need gifts of the Spirit anymore. This is what cessationists believe. And their thought process is, well, now that that has taken place, now that that Christianity has gotten off the ground, there's no need for healing because when Christ returns, we're all going to have new bodies anyway. We're going to be fully healed anyway. Some of them might even go as far as to say, why ask the Lord to heal an 80-year-old believer of cancer if they're about to receive a new body anyway? But my question is, well, what about the unbeliever who needs a miracle? What about the unbeliever who needs to see an act of God in their life? I think that there's four purposes for healing. There's four reasons that I believe God still heals today. And the first reason is that I believe that healing is a sign to authenticate the gospel message and show that God's kingdom has come, just like the gift of miracles. It is a way to authenticate the gospel message. And Jesus taught in Luke 17, 21, that the kingdom of God had come when he was born in a manger. He said, the kingdom of God is now here among you. It's in your midst. And it's a sign to authenticate that what Jesus brought when he was born in the manger was the kingdom of God. It is here. The second reason that healing brings comfort to those who are ill, obviously, and demonstrates God's love and mercy to those in distress. The third reason is that it equips people for service. It takes away physical impediments to ministry. That people, when they are healed, they, uh, the, the, the things that are keeping them back from ministering the way that God has called them to, they're suddenly removed. And God heals people so that they could minister and bring the kingdom of God to places where, the, where they couldn't normally do it before. And the last reason is that it provides an opportunity for God to be glorified as people see physical evidence of his goodness, as they see physical evidence of his love and his power, his presence, as they see evidence of God's wisdom, that God is glorified. When somebody sees somebody healed, it's this moment where God gets all of the glory and they see how good God is, that he's not a big bully in the sky waiting to whack people with a stick, but he is a gracious, loving, and merciful God. I want to talk a little bit about my experience with this gift. I'm not sure that I have the gift of healing. In fact, I I don't believe that I do. But I have witnessed God perform miraculous healings before my eyes. And I, as a discipline, have decided in my life to pray for the sick. As we all should. We all should, should make it a discipline. If you do not have the gift of healing, that is not an excuse to say, well, I don't have the gift. So I don't have to do it. Because I've prayed for people, and it was just a real bummer. It was a real downer. I prayed my mightiest prayer. I was as eloquent as I could ever be, and nothing happened. I I don't have the gift, so I don't have to do it anymore. No, whatever is not a spiritual gift is a spiritual discipline for you now. And you are still called to pray for the sick. When Jesus sent his people, his 72 out, he said, go, heal the sick, raise the dead. Not those with the gift of healing, go heal the sick. But he said, everyone, all of you, go heal the sick, raise the dead cast out or cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. 
When I was working at the airport, I worked at PDX, my least favorite job in my entire life. I had to uh, wake up at, I had to be at work, I believe it was like 2 a.m. or something like, 2 or 3 a.m. I had to be at the airport at 2 or 3 a.m., and then I would work till 10 a.m. I'd go home for a little while, and I'd have to come back in at like 5 p.m. or something, or 4 p.m., because I was unloading these, these planes, and it was cold and windy, and the people I worked with were just not great people. My least favorite job that I've ever had. But I knew that when I met this young man named Ryan, I knew that I had got this job because God wanted me to meet Ryan. And I had just come out of ministry school, so I've got this zeal, and I'm just stoked on life, stoked on Jesus. And Ryan would invite me to the strip club after work every day. He knew that I was a believer, and I think he would just invite me to get under my skin. He's like, hey, you want to come to the strip club with me? And I'd be like, haha, very funny. No, I don't want to come again. Stop asking me. And he would ask me every day, and he would joke around, and he would just tell these vulgar jokes, and, and, and he lived with his girlfriend and just had a really rough history, and, and he would just tell these, like, horrible jokes and stuff. And, and one day he shows up to work, and his wrist is taped up. And I go, oh, man, Ryan, what happened to your wrist? And he says he, was a, he loved to fish. He said, I was fishing yesterday, and I slept on some, some rocks, and I went to catch myself, and I sprained my wrist, and it just it's in so much pain I can hardly move it. And I said... Ryan, he, I'd been telling him about Jesus up to this point. And I said, Ryan, I want to show you right now that Jesus loves you. Can I, can I pray for your wrist? And he's like, okay, sure. You know, and he gives me his wrist. And I put my hand on his wrist. And I said, in the name of Jesus, I command all pain in Ryan's wrist to leave. God, would you show Ryan your love for him? And as I prayed, his eyes widened. And he said, whoa. He goes, I feel a heat around my wrist. And it was like this fire around my wrist. And I said, well, move it. He's moving around. He goes, I don't feel any pain at all. And then he starts walking around to our other coworkers at the airport going, hey, do you got any pain in your body? Have Blake pay for, pray for your pain. He paid pray for my wrist and the, the pain is totally gone. And he starts telling our coworkers about it. And I, I was just honored to be a part of this. So the next morning, Ryan he goes, he goes home, comes back the next morning, and his wrist is wrapped up again. And he goes, ah, oh, man, Blake, last night I went home, my wrist started hurting again. But here, pray for it. Because when you prayed for it yesterday, the pain left immediately. And I said, okay, let's pray for it again. And I, I said, Jesus, I did the same thing, and I commanded the pain to leave. And once again, his wrist was completely healed. Now, I didn't have an opportunity to lead Ryan into a, a, a prayer of faith, but I I know that he experienced God's power, and he experienced God's love over his life. There was another opportunity that I had. I was, at, I was a cabin leader at a summer camp, and this has only happened to me one time in my entire life, but I was, I was dead asleep in my bunk bed with a bunch of kids in the cabin, and I shot up out of my bed. As soon as I opened my eyes, I shot up, and I was wide awake. You know, typically when you're awake, you're a little groggy, and you just, it takes a little bit to kind of, like, wake up. Well, this was, it's never happened to me like this before or since, but I shot out of bed, and my eyes opened, and I was alert. I was wide awake, like, like I had a ton of coffee going through my system. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly in that moment. He said, today I want to heal people. And I knew it was God, and I went to our staff meeting. We had to be at the staff meeting before the students got up. And at the end of the staff meeting, somebody asked, 
Does anybody have uh, feel like they have a word from the Lord? And I said, actually, yeah, I feel like the Lord woke me up and told me that he wants to heal people today. And they said, all right, so just be looking for people who need healing. You know, ask students if you can pray for them. And maybe this is a word from the Lord. And so during free time, there is a girl uh, sitting at a table by herself. She went to our youth group. Her name was Emerald. And she was uh, didn't have a lot of friends. And, and she was looking really down and pretty sad. And so I walk up to Emerald, and she's got a, a Velcro cast on her foot. One of those, like, Velcro casts that you can take on and off. And so I walk up to Emerald, and I say, Emerald, man, what happened to your foot? And she goes, oh, I, I broke my foot in a couple different places, and I'm waiting to, when I get home, I have a doctor's appointment, I'm going to get a real cast put on it. And I was like, uh, that's kind of strange that she didn't do that before she came to camp. But I said, Emerald, I said, Emerald, I, I heard God say that he wants to heal people today. Can I pray for you? And she goes, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. And so I did something that I've never done before, and I haven't done it since. But I started singing a Jack Johnson song over her but changing the words to pray. And so I started praying. Oh, can't you see that Emerald's hurting? There ain't no need for all this pain. It's banana pancakes. Jack Johnson, anybody? Have you heard that song? And I'm just singing this goofy song. So Jesus, heal Emerald's foot. You take away the pain. And she's laughing, and we're laughing together. And we could just feel the joy of this moment. She's smiling. And I get done, and I was like, I, I honestly I felt like, that was weird. Why did I do that, you know? And I said, well, how are you feeling, Emerald? And she goes, you know, the numbness went away. It was like numb and tingly before, but now I can like feel my toes and it, it feels good. I said, well, do you want to like, do you want to try putting on the, uh, and before we started praying, I asked her, what's the pain like? She said, well, I can't even stand on it. It hurts to stand on. There's so much pain. I can't stand on it. And I said, after I prayed, I said, well, how's it feel now? I said, do you want to try putting weight on it? Like no pressure. <laughs> you know, do you want to, you want to try to stand on it? And she slowly puts weight on it. And eventually she starts hopping on one foot on her broken foot, takes off the cast. And she shared at chapel later that night, how God had healed her foot. God moved in her life, and it was one of the few moments in my life where I, I got to be a part of, of God showing how much he loves someone. Now, I've prayed for lots of people, and, and I would say that I've prayed for more people that haven't been healed than I've prayed for people who have been healed. And I haven't always seen an immediate result. So I, I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe they have been healed when I walked away. But for the most part, I haven't seen an immediate result. And so I've prayed for lots of people. And more times than not, they haven't been healed. And, and some people may suggest many reasons for that. They might say that, well, there might have been a lack of faith on your part, Pastor. Or that person you were praying for might have had a lack of faith. Or maybe there's sin in someone's life that wasn't addressed. Or, or maybe you needed to pray and to fast more. And while some of that may be true, may hold some truth, we have to keep in mind that we live in what some people refer to as the now, but not yet. The now, but not yet. What do I mean by that? Well, June 6, 1944 was known as what? Come on. We got some, some patriots in the room. June 6, 1944 is known as D-Day, and it's when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, and they turned the tide of World War II. Many people would say that after D-Day, you could be certain that it was only a matter of time before the war was won. 
the tide was turned. The war, the, the war was almost over, but VE Day was when the war officially was over, and it happened 11 months later on May 8th, 1945. Church, we are living in the 11 months before, in the 11 months between those two dates. We are in the now, but not yet. Jesus turned the tide when he rose from the dead, and victory over sin and death has certainly been won. He snatched the keys of death away from the enemy. They, he, he no longer has power. That Jesus won the victory. But the Bible says that there is still coming a day when he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21.4 says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And until that day, we still experience pain and suffering in this world, don't we? We live in the now but not yet. We are still waiting for the full victory to come, but we have a taste of heaven in our midst. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth when he was born. And he brought God's he brought the power of the spirit with him. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, "Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven," didn't he? Let me ask you, is there sickness in heaven? Is there pain in heaven? Jesus has given us healing as a, fo- as a foretaste of the full life to come. Healing is a foretaste of the full healing that is to come, of the life that is to come. You know, the spring here in Ephrata is cold, you guys. And there's, it's windy. Nobody told me that it was windy. It's windy. But, you know, for a few days in the spring, you guys know what I'm talking about. When the sun comes out for a few days in the spring and it's like 75 and sunny. And those few days in the spring, you walk around town and everybody's wearing shorts and a T-shirt. As if it's summer. They're acting like summer is here. But then two days later, it's, it's raining again and it's windy and it's cold. But those few sunny days are like a reminder to us that summer is coming. That we have vacation to look forward to. We have camping to look forward to. We have swimming and boating to look forward to. And those few sunny days that we experience in the spring remind us that summer is on its way. Healing, likewise, reminds us that Jesus is coming and he's renewing all things. When you get a healing in your life and you experience God's healing, it is a reminder that Jesus is coming and he's restoring everything. What I want us to understand, I think this is probably the most, this is, this is a, maybe you didn't even realize this, that this is a controversy, or maybe this is something that, uh, that you haven't been able to put language to, but if you walk away with anything after today, it's this message. God wants you well. God wants you well. Now, let me explain myself here, because some of you might be thinking, hold on, pastor, I've got a few examples that counter that. Some people think that God uses sickness and pain in order to teach them, in order to give them a lesson. And according to this way of thinking, every bad thing that happens in the world is directed by God. And he has a particular reason for doing that bad thing. So earthquakes and cancer and diabetes and arthritis, God must be teaching somebody something. He must be doing something. And this is another way of saying that God does not, he does not want everyone to be well. 
In fact, he wants some people to be sick in order that their character may grow and in order that he can build them up in a different way. And I think there's two problems with this thinking. The first problem is that if illness is God's way of getting people's attention, we would have to conclude that what the world needs is more illness. We need more illness. If this is how God gets people's attention, if this is how he builds character sometimes, then why wouldn't he make everyone sick until they finally wised up and started obeying him? That's the first problem is we know that that's not true. The second thing is that this thinking does not align with scripture. When you read the Bible, you understand that sickness and death does not come from God. It comes from someone else. Scripture is clear that sickness is from the devil and it is a result of the fall of man. In Acts 10.38, it says this. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Jesus went around doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. Who were they oppressed by? The devil. If they were sick, if God causes sickness and Jesus is going around healing people, then he's working against his father. Now, does that mean that everyone who is sick has an evil spirit? Or the devil is inside of them working in them. I don't think that is so. But in some cases it may be true based upon some, some stories of healing that we read about in the Bible. Like the boy who would throw himself into the fire and, 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 and his father came and, and needed healing for the son. And, and Jesus cast the demons out of the boy and healed the boy. There's examples in scripture of people who, who are afflicted physically because of a spiritual condition. There, there has been those examples in the Bible. But it doesn't mean that everyone who is sick has an evil spirit. Disease and destruction are the work of the devil. And Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. John 10.10 says, Jesus said this. Jesus said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The devil has come to steal and kill and to afflict you and to oppress you. But I've come so that you can have life and you could be set free from those things. That's why Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds we are healed. He came to bring us healing. In Luke 4.17, we see Jesus' first sermon ever. Now, Jesus is the best preacher who ever lived. The best preacher on the face of the earth. And as it was custom, Jesus comes to a temple and he is asked by the teachers there. He was a guest rabbi and it was a custom to ask the guest rabbi in town to read some scripture for everybody. So they invited Jesus to come and to read scripture. And Jesus waltzes up to the front and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and unrolls it to chapter 61. And Jesus reads this. The first message that he ever delivers is a mission statement his mission statement the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the lord's favor then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down Mic drop. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. And he began by saying to them, today 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. Come on. Jesus drops the mic, walks away. He says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I brought heaven with me. The kingdom has come. It's in your midst. It's here. Jesus was on a mission to heal. And the Bible says that Jesus only did what he saw his father in heaven doing. So why would God want to keep some people sick? Why would he want people to be sick if Jesus came to make people well? became people. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't use sickness. We learn a lot in times of trial, don't we? We learn a lot in times of suffering. In fact, the Bible is full of scripture verses. James is full uh, of these verses that, that, that are meant to bring you comfort in times of trial. And we have to understand that in the Bible, there is a theology of suffering. And Paul talks about, Jesus, I want to share, just as I share in your resurrection, I want to share in your suffering. That there is a theology of suffering, and God does work in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our heartache. He works with it, but he does not cause it. It does not come from him, but he does use it. Now, I know where some of you are going here. You're thinking, wait, pastor, you're forgetting about Job. What about Job? For those of you who aren't familiar with the, the book of Job, Job is a book in the Bible that tells the true story about a man who it describes as blameless and upright and feared God. Job was a good man. He feared God. It's considered the oldest book in the Bible, by the way, the book of Job. And the devil in chapter 1 approaches God and asks for God's permission to wreak havoc on Job's life. And God says, okay, but don't lay a finger on my servant himself. Don't lay a finger on Job. And after the devil takes away Job's family, Job says this. I believe it's in verse 21. Do we have it up there? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Do you hear that, Pastor? It says right there, the Lord takes away. And many people like to quote this passage at funerals and say wonderful things. And I know the sentiment is from the heart. It's a sincere it's a sincere message when people say God wanted that beautiful rose for himself, so he reached down from heaven and he plucked it up for himself. Or God wanted another angel in his choir. And I understand the sentiment that, that God loves this person so much, and that's true. But I don't believe that God takes away. And let me explain why. The Bible is the inspired word of God. We have to remember that first and foremost. But we also have to remember that some passages include statements by people who did not know the truth at the time that they said that statement. And they say statements. There's people in the Bible who say statements that do not accurately reflect God's nature. Let me give you an, another example of this in Scripture. We like to talk about Gideon and when he laid out his fleece to the Lord. We always talk about this as something that we should follow after. That Gideon, oh yeah, the Lord has given me an assignment. He's given a calling. I'm going to do what Gideon did, and I'm going to lay out a fleece for the Lord because that's what's in the Bible, right? But in fact, that was the opposite of what Gideon was supposed to do because God told Gideon, before he even laid out the fleece, God made a promise to Gideon. He said, I have already, he says, I have given you the Midianites into your hand. You will be victorious. I will lead you in victory 
against the Midianites. He gave Gideon a promise that Gideon was supposed to take to the bank and believe it in his heart. But instead, Gideon doubted and had to test God twice. Had to lay out this fleece twice. And we read this this passage in scripture and go, oh, that's what Gideon did. That's what I should do. No, it's not. God wants you to trust his word. When God tells you something, when he gives you a promise, he wants you to trust in what he said. That it's true. Believe it. I said it. It's true. And so that's one example in the Bible how we've misinterpreted that. And we've, we've seen Gideon do that. And we go, oh, that's what we're supposed to do. But in fact, that was not the nature of God. He did something that was not in the nature of God. God still blessed Gideon, didn't he? He still gave him victory. Gideon was still used as a mighty man for the Lord. And the story of Job records a conversation that happened. It records what happened between Job and his friends and God. But it does not mean that every statement Job said was true. Okay, pastor, you better keep explaining yourself because I'm about to walk out. You're on thin ground, pastor. Okay, hear me out for a little bit more. Let me explain Job a little bit more. For 37 chapters of the book of Job, and you can read this when you go home if you'd like. It's a poetic, it's a poetic book. For 37 chapters of the book, Job and his friends are arguing. And Job's friends are giving him terrible advice. His friends are saying, curse God, Job. Just throw in the towel. Why are you remaining faithful to a God who has brought this calamity on you? Just curse him and be done with it. Wash your hands. And Job refuses to do that. He refuses to do it. Job admits within these chapters, the first 37 chapters, within these chapters, Job admits that he has given into a spirit of fear. Check out what he says in the book of Job. Um, I forget the verse. It says, what I feared has come upon me. Do we have that verse up there? Okay, we don't have it. Job says, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. See, Job was upright, he was a good man, but he was not a perfect man. He had his own faults. He didn't have the revelation of Scripture to rely on. He didn't even have the Old Testament because Job is considered the oldest book in the Bible. He had a primitive understanding of truth. And he says three, three things in his argument with his friends. He says, number one, that God doesn't hear his cries for help. He laments in the first 37 chapters, says, God doesn't hear my cries for help. Is that a true statement? No, but Job said it. God doesn't hear my cries for help. Number two, he says, he ha- Job, Job thinks that he hasn't done anything wrong, but God is persecuting him anyway. So he doesn't think he's done anything wrong, but he admitted before that he's given into a spirit of fear, and he's blaming God for the destruction that has come on his life, even though it was the devil that took it away. And third, he, he tells God, it's not fair that the wicked prosper. It's not fair that I'm suffering, but other people prosper. And then God, finally, after 37 chapters, God speaks. And God's response can be summarized in two points. He says, number one, Job, I am in control of the whole world. And number two, you are not. Who are you to tell me? Who prospers and who doesn't prosper? Do you control the world? 
Is everything under, under your control? And Job is humbled by God's response. He puts his hands in front of his mouth, and he willingly admits that he was wrong to blame God for the suffering in his world. In fact, it was not God all along. And then at the very end of the story, God restores everything that Job had lost. Possessions, servants, a new family, everything. In fact, Job had twice the wealth that he had at the beginning of the story. It was as if God was saying to Job, now that you realize that I'm not out to get you, let me show you how loving and generous I am. Let me show you that I'm a good God, that destruction and chaos comes from the devil, but I'm the one who restores it. I'm the one who brings life, an abundant life. Okay, pastor, you've made the argument that God wants me well, that he wants people well. So if God's general will is for everyone to experience healing, then why are some people not healed when we pray? Why are people not healed? I don't think any of us should assume that we know the answer to this question. Because like he said to Job, you are not God. We are not God. We don't know all the answers to the spiritual. It may not be and most likely isn't as black and white as a lack of faith or, or, or sin in someone's life. However, I do think, and I want to take a moment to talk about how the Bible correlates sickness and disease with sin and unforgiveness. I think it's important to talk about. And how the Bible encourages us to have faith. Not to say that every time somebody isn't healed, it's one of these two things. But we need to talk about it because the Bible emphasizes the correlation between sin and sickness. And how Jesus, he talks a lot about faith when it comes to healing. Let's talk first about sin and unforgiveness. We have to understand that we are holistic creations. What does that mean? It means that your spiritual life and your physical life are not separated. They, they, are, they go together. They work together. God made you mind, intellect, emotions, will, body. It's all, it's you. It's all you. We're holistic creations. If your spirit is strong, but your body is suffering, then you are not well. And likewise, if your body is strong, but your spirit or your emotions or your mental life is suffering, then you are still not well. And these facets of our being affect each other. They affect each other in our lives. When Jesus healed people, he often addressed their spiritual lives. Like in Luke 5.20, when a man who was paralyzed, he was lowered through a roof. Jesus was teaching and there was no room. So his friends came and cut a hole in the roof and lowered their paralytic friend through the roof and laid him at the feet of Jesus. This man needs healing, physical healing. He needs to walk. But Jesus looks at the man who's lying in front of him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He addresses the spiritual need first by saying your sins are forgiven. And then he proceeds to say, now get up, take your mat, take up your mat and walk. And the man walked out of the room. James 5.16, it says this. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. When we confess our sins to God, we receive forgiveness. When we confess our sins to each other, we receive healing. 
James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and you will be healed. There's this correlation between healing and our sin. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of an unforgiving servant who did not forgive a debt and he was severely punished. And after the story, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's a harsh, that's one of my least favorite stories in the Bible church because it's so difficult to swallow. I read that and I go, was that in my Bible? Did somebody add that? Because I thought, I thought God always forgives. But Jesus says, if you don't forgive those in your life, then my father will not forgive you. What? That doesn't sound very Christian. What faith is this? What church am I at this morning? The reality is, is we must forgive others in order to release God's power in our lives. Wow, I am super going long. I'm sorry. Are you okay? Everybody okay? Inner healing precedes physical healing. Does that mean that every time a person isn't healed, is because they have unconfessed sin or haven't forgiven others? No, it does not mean that. There can be many reasons why someone isn't healed, but inner healing is a clear principle that we see in Scripture, and it has to be considered when we're praying for people. Okay, let's move on to faith. All throughout scripture are examples of people who received healing because of their faith or the faith of someone else. There's an example in Matthew 9, 22. There's a woman who was bleeding for 12 years and she made her way through a crowd and she touched the hem of Jesus's garment and her bleeding stopped immediately. And Jesus felt power come out of him and he looked at the woman and he says, woman, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. There's a centurion soldier in Matthew 8, verse 10 who uh, had a servant who was sick, and he said, I am a man of authority, and I say to this servant, go and do this, and he doesn't, so I know that if you would just say the word, you have authority to heal my servant, and Jesus goes, whoa, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land. This guy's faith is huge. He says, go, your servant is well. The man who was lowered through the roof in Luke 5, we just talked about him. After he was lowered on the mat, Luke 5 says, when Jesus saw the faith of the people who lowered him down, he looked at the friends who were lowering him through the roof, and it says, when Jesus saw their faith, the man was healed. He saw their faith. Matthew 17, 20. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is talking about faith. Mark 9, 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible. Not some things, all things. That includes healing. All things are possible for those who believe. There's a correlation between our faith and healing as well as sin and disease. Not to say that that is the blanket answer. That's not the blanket answer. Please, church, hear me. That's not the answer. It's not a blanket statement. However, when we pray for those who need healing, we can consider the faith that is in the room, and we can consider maybe there's something here, some unconfessed sin, some unforgiveness that we need to address before we start praying. So how should we pray for healing? I'm going to go really fast through this. I think the number one mistake that we can make is not pray at all. (laughs) That's the the most obvious thing. The worst thing that you can do is not pray at all and think, well, I don't have the gift of healing. I'm not super confident. I don't feel like my faith is big enough, and I don't want to look stupid. 
so I'm just not going to pray. That's the worst thing you can do. John Wimber was a revivalist in the 70s and 80s. He's one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, and he had a very successful healing ministry. And he said, when we didn't pray for anybody, nobody was healed. But we, prayed, we, we started praying for everybody, and some people were healed. Not praying for anybody is, is the worst thing that you can do. We also need to make sure that we don't tell people that God seldom heals. When you pray, you don't say, listen, I'm going to pray for you, but like, this hardly works. You know, like I've, I've seen this maybe a handful of times or I've heard stories, but this doesn't really work. That's really faith building, isn't it, church? You don't tell people, oh, God seldom heals. And you also don't build up false hope and tell them that God always heals. That, that nobody has 100% accuracy except Jesus himself. And John Wimber, like I mentioned before, he, he gave, uh, he has five steps and, and I want to offer these five things to you, not as, not as like a formula to get your healing, right? Don't, if you follow these five steps, you're going to see healing in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But most of us practice a hit and run healing, a hit and run prayer for healing. We hear that somebody is sick and we say something like, dear God, you know that Joe is sick. Father, you know his problem. And, and we ask that if it's your will, would you heal him and do so in the name of Jesus? Bye, Joe. Have a great day. And we walk away, and we don't know what happened to Joe, and we don't really care what happened to Joe. But Jesus, but Jesus, he modeled a lifestyle that could be taught. He had a ministry that was taught to his disciples. And so there are things that we can learn from the life of Jesus. Let me give you some quick examples. When Jesus' disciples were unable to heal a demon-possessed boy, Jesus showed exasperation for their lack of competence. And this is in Luke 9.40. Jesus said, the disciples said, we, we did everything we could. And still the boy wasn't healed. And Jesus, guys, Jesus goes, oh, man, you guys, when, when are you going to start believing? Where, where's your faith? And Jesus showed a, a lack of exasperate, uh, exasperation, indicating there's something that you guys missed here. And in a parallel uh, scripture in Mark, Mark's account of this miracle reveals that the disciples, they asked Jesus after he healed the boy, they said, how'd you do that? How, how did you do that? We tried and we couldn't do it, but how did you do it? And Jesus taught them how to do it. And he revealed to them that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. This is how you do it, guys. Pray and you fast. When Jesus commissioned the 72, he told them, in Luke 10, it says, when Jesus commissioned the 72, he told them to do all that he had taught them. So Jesus had a ministry that could be taught to others. Not a magic formula, but a ministry that can be taught. Obviously, there were things that Jesus did when praying for the sick that we can learn. And so I want to offer these five things real quick to you and uh, that we learn from Jesus' healing. Uh, number one, the first thing that we should do when we pray for the sick is we should interview the sick person. Interview the sick person. What does that mean? In a very non-threatening way, ask the person, where does it hurt? What, what's going on? Or what experiences have you been having lately? And don't just say things like, well, God knows the need. But have the person state the specific request so that you can rejoice with them and that you can, you can celebrate with them when you start seeing answers to prayer. So interview the sick person, number one. The second thing is diagnose the need. Remember, spiritual healing often precedes physical healing. And so you can ask questions, again, very non-threatening by saying, what's going on in your life right now? 
What's happening? Is there, is there something that the Holy Spirit is indicating to you that, that, that he's highlighting to you? What, what is happening in your life right now? And remember, this is not an interrogation, but it's motivated by love and compassion. The third thing. So we interview the person. We diagnose the need. And number three, select the type of prayer to be used. What do you mean type of prayer, pastor? Prayer is prayer. Well, in the Bible, we see different kinds of prayer. The first type of prayer is petition, and it's where you ask the Lord for a specific thing. You ask the Lord for a specific healing. Lord, take away this cancer or heal this shoulder. In Jesus' name, would you do this? In Jesus' name, there's petition. There's intercession. And intercession is a long-term commitment where God has asked you to stand in on behalf of a person. You stand in on behalf and say, I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to, I'm going to continue praying for your healing. I'm going to stand in the gap so that you can be healed. The third thing is a command. And usually when the Holy, you do this when the Holy Spirit directs you. It commands the power that is yours in Jesus' name. Just like what Peter did when he saw the man at the gate beautiful. He said, stand up and walk. He gave them a command. And this is what I did with Ryan. I said, in the name of Jesus, I pray or I, I command this pain to leave his wrist. And you do this when the Holy Spirit directs you to do it, church. Key phrase, all right? All of these. Do it when the Holy Spirit directs you to do it. The third type of prayer is a rebuke. Similar to a command, it must be directed by the Holy Spirit and uh, is directed to the enemy in the case of demonic affliction. And so in, when you are rebuking, you are, you are rebuking an evil spirit. You're rebuking demonic activity in somebody's life. And when you're led by the Holy Spirit, sometimes you'll be led to rebuke something that is causing the affliction. And then the last one is a pronouncement. Jesus made pronouncements on occasion. And also the disciples made pronouncements. And it's a prayer that pronounces the sick person well. It pronounces, you are well in Jesus' name. I declare that God has, has healed you. Go and be in peace. It's a pronouncement. And remember, all of it is directed by the Holy Spirit. So, okay, and interview the sick person, diagnose the need, select the type of prayer, and then number four, evaluate the results. Evaluate the results. What do I mean? You can ask in a very non-threatening way, how are you doing? Do you feel any changes? And tell them to be honest. They may feel a change or you may sense something is happening. And if God is still working, then you are still working. Okay? Now, some of you in the room, some, some people think, well, asking the person to tell you if it's working or not, I think that pressures them to give you a fake answer. It, it pressures them into feeling like they have to say that something is happening so that you would stop praying and they can go home and have lunch. Okay? But, but I, I actually believe that it reassures them that you are genuine. And you want to see them healed. You don't want a hit and run type of prayer. That you care for them. You want to see them healed. And so, obviously, you pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Look at their face. If they look slightly annoyed, if they, you, you, you follow the Holy Spirit's leading. If it's time to stop, it's time to stop. But if God is doing something and you feel, you know that God is doing something in their life and you need to keep praying. If God's not done, you're not done. Keep praying. Does that make sense? Evaluate the results. And lastly, we forget about this, but give post-prayer direction. Jesus was seen telling people to stay out of the sin that entangled that person in the first place. So you can give 
good advice. You can give wisdom to that person. And it might not be, uh, it might not be a demonic thing, but it could be something as, uh, as simple as someone who is healed of a common cold. If you're praying for them and you discover that they're only sleeping a few hours at night, you have permission to say, you cannot continue to live like this if, and expect to stay well. If you're not getting enough rest, your body is going to get sick again. So you can give them post-prayer direction as a way of, of, of helping them see that the way that I'm living is just going to make me wind up in the same spot that I'm in now. And so, um, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually have my dad come up next week. Are you going to be here next week? <laughs> I was going to have my dad. My dad, and my dad would not admit this. But my dad, I believe, has the gift of healing, and he has been hungry after it for years, and he uh, has encouraging stories that he brings home very often about people that he's prayed for while he's golfing or other clients that he has when he's working, these amazing stories of God's healing. And so uh, next week, I'm going to have him come up and share because I know that we are way over our time together. But before we go, I would be, it would be a mistake to, to not open up the altar for people who would like healing. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand. And I want to let you know that if you need to go, God bless you. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, we are dismissed and you're free to go. However, if you need a miracle, you need a healing in your life, would you have the boldness to come forward and ask God for healing? And so I'm going to ask my dad to come forward. And Peter, would you come forward too and, and pray? And um, Kurt's not here. Maybe Jethro, if you're here too. Paul, do you want to come forward and pray? Come on up here. Let's pray together. And then, uh, Emily, you want to come pray? Oh. Yeah. What's your daughter-in-law's name? Liz. Liz, yeah. And, and Rita Hare also fell. And, and your mother, Sharon Moody, as well. There are people in our church who need, a, who need a miracle, who need healing in their life. And so, church... Touch the shoulder of somebody next to you or grab somebody's hand. And let's, let's pray in faith. Father, thank you that we are your kids and that you love us. Father, just like every good father in this room, they do not want to see their kids sick. They want to see their kids well. And Jesus, you called the church to continue your ministry of healing throughout the earth. We are your hands and your feet. And Father, give us the faith that we lack. And Father, we ask that the revival that is going to come in this place would start today. In Jesus' name. God, we ask for a move of the Spirit. And for those who are tired and those who may be disappointed by prayers that weren't answered, renew their faith in Jesus' name. God, we pray for Liz, who's listening right now with cancer. Holy Spirit, would you move through the computer screen as she's listening to this. And Holy Spirit, touch her body right now. We command this cancer to leave in Jesus' name for her to experience a miracle as she's listening to this, that she would give a praise of this next week. God, we lift up Sharon to you right now. And we ask, Lord, for a miracle to take place in her life, that the Moody family would have a testimony that would go out. And they would remember this and people would hear about this. Father, we want you to be glorified. We want you to get all the praise. So, Father, come in healing right now in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for Rita who fell 
and, and, and broke her hip. God, we ask for a miracle to take place in her body. God, that you would work something that only you can do. You gave us these bodies. You know how to put them back together with new, better pieces. And so, Father, we thank you for, for what you're doing in this place. We stand in faith for these people. In Jesus' name, I pray for everyone else in this room who is hungry and searching for, uh, for healing in their life. God, would you show your love and your compassion, your mercy, your goodness to, to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mary, I'm going to ask you to play the piano for a bit. Like I said, God bless you. You are dismissed. If you'd like to come up for prayer, feel free to come forward. I also want to, we should probably move grow class to next Sunday. Because of how late it is. I want to spend some time praying for people. So next Sunday we will go ahead and do our grow class. But God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.